Hello, welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, introducing the new podcast, which is the place for moms to find encouragement, hope, and inspiration, where we're supporting moms in the trenches of motherhood. You will receive practical tips and strategies to address the developmental needs of your children with a positive parenting perspective in mind. Here at Moms Changing the World, we are moms on the journey of changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Hello and welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, child development nurse practitioner, parent coach, and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer of moms who are joining together, raising children, one child at a time, one day at a time. I am so excited today for this bonus special episode that we're doing because we typically feature moms who are raising their own children or who have raised their children, but we got a special opportunity to work with and hear from an author who doesn't have children of her own, but makes an incredible impact on children, youth as a mentor, youth leader, and a spiritual mother, and auntie to many. And I'm so excited to be able to bring her stories and her insights to some really, really important topics. I like to open up with an African proverb, and the one that I'll share today is a popular one. And it goes, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that one really speaks for itself in that I know sometimes as a parent, if we're trying to do something, it's much easier to not enlist the help of the kids and just do it ourselves, right? Because then we can just go quick. But when we're thinking about things like how our community is growing, how our community is changing, how we need to and make progress and move forward in things like race relations and civil rights, we know that it's not a quick journey, it's not a quick sprint, it's a marathon, and that we need each other. And as we're recording this in the you know, America's Black History Month, it's really on top of my mind to, to bring stories and guests who have their own personal stories and insights to share. And our author today, J.P. Miller, is one of the best. J.P. Miller is an award-winning author who has been publishing since 2013. Growing up in Asheville, North Carolina, her weekdays were filled with school and sports. The daughter of a Baptist minister, her weekends were spent in church, and in between, she loved to read. As a student in the 1960s and 70s, she had an unrelenting thirst for books about African-American people and culture. Back then, few were available. After retiring from the U.S. Forest Service in 2015, J.P. dedicated her life to writing stories of the African diaspora in children's literature. She enjoys writing stories that young people will enjoy and parents and educators yearn for while taking an active role in tearing down cultural barriers. J.P. is a recipient of the 2016 Best Short Stories Anthology Award, an African-American Literary Award, and in 2021, she received the Black Authors Matter Award from the National Black Book Festival. She has, since 2019, 
completed over 60 biographies in work for hire projects from October 2020. Hashit's Children's uh, Group, a United Kingdom, released her Black Stories Matter series to coincide with Great Britain's Black History Month. She's also done picture book series like Leaders Like Us by um, J.P. Miller with Rourke Educational Media, and that is her most successful series to date. She writes stories that educate, inspire, and motivate young readers, drawing from her own life experiences and the experiences of many in the diaspora. We are so excited to have you here this morning, JP. How are you? Hello, how are you, Akua? I am well. I am well. So glad to be able to have you here to share of you know, the rich library that you've created of stories. And we often will hear of and think of the stories of you know, the most prominent leaders, um, Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and many Absolutely. of them, yeah, made quite an impact and, and quite a sacrifice for the, the legacy that they've left behind. But I love that you also highlight some of the lesser known heroes in this journey that we've all, you know, in this long journey, have to, uh, to celebrate and uh, lean on as well. Right. I, I Actually, I look for the lesser known people and events and African-American history or history of the African diaspora, because those are the people that so many of us don't know about, but need to know about. They've done some really fantastic things that have impacted the United States, impacted the world. So I really look for the lesser known people and events. Yeah, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. So you know, as a, a spiritual mother, mentor, auntie, you know, tell me about um, a little bit about your life today and, you know, how you make an impact on children and youth in your community and the broader world. Well, you know, I've done a little bit of everything in youth programs. <laughs> awesome. That's <laughs> so, so great. Um, I started off majoring in uh, recreation administration at Tennessee State University in Nashville, Tennessee. And I have always had a love for young people and the elderly. I spent the majority of my career working in, in youth programs with the Department of Defense and Air Force. And I also worked some with the Boys and Girls Club and as well as City Parks and Recreation. So you can see I've been across the whole gamut in terms yeah. of government and, and municipal, correct, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, recreation and young people. And it's just, you know, I've always had that desire to work with young people and to help mold them. You know, a lot of times parents are in the, the day-to-day throw of parenting and doing different things for the children in terms of really, you know, maintaining them financially, that nature. So I've really tried to help mold them from a recreational standpoint, but at the same time, allowing them the freedom of discovering the things that they like and the things that they feel like they're good at and kind of enhancing that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so powerful. You know, as parents, we, it takes that village, right? It takes that group because as you mentioned, you know, many of us are working, you know, even volunteering, uh, we're just oftentimes, depending on what the state is, we're just in survival mode. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and so we really do rely on so many in the community around us, such as yourself, who are there for our children, who are nurturing them in day-to-day ways that we're not able to because we're not necessarily with them all the time. Correct. 
Yeah, yeah. That's and they're just, you know, there's just so many things now, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and there wasn't a whole lot offered to young people, period, not even to mention across the board, African American or people of African diaspora. But nowadays, there's so many things that we can help in guiding our children. So I just want to make sure that those things are made available, the parents are aware of them. You know, if I, you know, I played basketball and, and ran track when I was younger. But if some of the things that the young people have nowadays to help them to prepare for sports and, you know, at a younger age, man, it's no telling where I would have been. You know, I may have been an yeah. Olympic, an Olympic athlete. <laughs> you, know? But, you know, they just have so many things, different camps, science right. camp, computer right. camp, you know, we, we didn't have those things growing up. So I just want to, you know, kind of tap into what I see in the child and maybe pass that on to the parent if they haven't noticed it or whatever. But from a recreational mm-hmm. standpoint, sometimes I see those little things and I'd like to pass it on to the parent. And then they can do what they need to do to kind of mold that child in that direction. That's right. Take it and run. That's fabulous. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, speaking of growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, tell me how you, you know, came to find your passion in, in writing the way that you do. Oh, it's a funny story. My mother write, she used to write a lot of poetry and she would like write a lot of things for the church, you know, for my dad and the gospel groups that he'd sing in. She'd write their anniversary stuff. So writing and has always kind of been a part of my life by seeing her write and, and talk about things. But I never really noticed it. I, I was a class clown. And I had, <laughs> so no. I, had, <laughs> I know, right? No. <laughs> uh, but there was a class that I had when I was in middle school, I think it was. They didn't call it that then, but it was around sixth or seventh grade. And we would split our lunch break in the middle of that class. And I would come back late from class. And Mr. Livingston was very professional then. He'd go, Miss Miller, you will need to write me 150 words. Why you were late for school? <laughs> uh, late, late coming back from uh, lunch. And so I would make up stories. And, you know, instead of like, you know, the average child would, I will not be late for lunch. I will not be late from lunch. You know, I would make up stories and, and I kind of leave it at a cliffhanger. He said 150 words. I would leave it at a cliffhanger right there so I have room to be late the next day. (laughs) (laughs) To finish the story. (laughs) To finish the story. He loved it. He loved it. So Uh, I credit Mr. Livingston for. (laughs) And you being late. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Tell the children, don't try this. That's right. That's right. Don't try this at home. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And so then you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, you tell us a little bit about what that was like. Well, you know, when I when I started school, I was going to an all-Black school in my community, and it may have been sixth grade uh, when they closed down all the Black schools, and then we start integrating out. So I was in that whole process of integration, you know, the segregation integration phase of uh, America. And, you know, went to the, went to the white schools and I was bust. It may have been like, uh, probably like eight to 10 miles from my home. Whereas I used to walk three or four blocks to get to school. Mm. So that was all a part of, of my upbringing. And we mm-hmm. probably, you know, a lot of the kids today are probably standing on our shoulders, you know, from the things that we went through, um, mm-hmm. to get the classroom to look like it does today in terms of 
being able to look across a classroom and see just, you know, different ethnicities and, and people. And, you know, so that was really the way things were when, when I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And in terms of literature, there wasn't a lot of literature that had Black characters or Black stories. And if it was, it was, you know, normally probably not what we would consider the best reading for our children nowadays. So mm-hmm. I, I, I was a reader and I loved adventure type stories like, mm-hmm. you know, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Right. Um, and so you, you feel like you're really, you know, in the story. Indeed. And so, yeah. yeah, so that's that's the way I like to write. I like to put the child in the story so they'll feel like, you know, they're sweating and don't even know why they're sweating because of the adventure, <laughs> or, you know, or the fear, you know. So I love to bring the stories to life. And that was because those were not the type stories that I had growing up, particularly they did not have black characters or anything, you know, about the, you know, the community that we could relate to. So that's my, that's really my sole purpose or one of my purposes for writing and writing the way that I do. That's great. That's great. Yeah. You know, and we, those in, you know, my generation, I was born in Ghana, but grew up in the eighties in Los Angeles area. And so it was, you know, really pretty diverse in terms of the schools that I went to. And we often, you know, take for granted if we didn't experience that in, mm-hmm. in our childhood or in, in our history or in our area, our region of the country. We take for granted that there's a, a pretty diverse mix of kids in every class, right. you know, right. that, that we, we go to. So, you know, thank you. And right. Thanks to the generations, right. That had to endure some of the not so pleasant times, like, as you said, yes. to, to get to, because we see and hear the story of Ruby Bridges, you know, of course, comes exactly. to and, mm-hmm. and you know, it's quite a, quite a journey if we take the time to acknowledge it. So tell me a little bit about some of the characters that you write about in your stories. Right now, the majority of the things that I'm writing is biographies because I'm working with the educational market mostly. So Hachette UK, as you mentioned, with the Black Stories Matter, and that is four books. I think it's activism and civil rights. There's science and there's arts, and I may be forgetting one, but there's four books, and each book has 10 primary biographies and then maybe like 10 mini biographies. And that is people all around the world. And so I really love that. And when I say Mm -hmm. people all around the world, people of African diaspora from all Mm -hmm. around the world. And when I was writing that series, the thing that I realized is that a lot of times in America, we're so compartmentalized as African-Americans and we feel like we're the only ones that went through this struggle. We're the only ones. And, and I have to admit that, you know, I was somewhat in that box until mm-hmm. I did the research for this, this series. And it was interesting to see that the Canada has a version of the NAACP. You know, mm-hmm. um, we, we, we always look at from American standpoint, African-American standpoint, the, the slaves, you know, escaping from America, going to Canada. But with me seeing that they have an NAACP, it's like, well, they had some of the same struggles that we have. So just because they crossed over into Canada doesn't mean that it was, you know, life freedom like we feel like it was, you know. And mm-hmm. at the same time, the the uh, the bus boycott was going on in America. It was also a bus boycott going on in 
Great Britain and the Black Britons were, you know, uh, experiencing this. So that was like a really eye opener for me with that series of biographies. And then there's the leaders like us um, mm-hmm. that I'm doing here in America, which, like I said, is probably the biggest one that this that I'm working on right now. And again, it's lesser known people. We always hear about Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, you know, those type people. And so these are lesser known people. And in terms of what I'd like to do with that is I always start off one of those biographies with a question that causes the child to look inside and and then they can relate to the story. So for example, with the Henry Louis Gates Jr. title, yeah. I, I start off with, you know, what is your name? No, really, what is your name? Who are you? And mm-hmm. so I guess I'm thinking about, oh, well, who am I? What are, what mm-hmm. are my roots? Mm-hmm. And so they can start maybe asking their parents to help them with the, and, and I think that was the activity in the back of it, because each one of them have study questions and, and an activity. And I, I believe that was the activity was to set up, a, you know, a pedigree chart of your family. So that may be their first introduction to that. So right now I'm working in the educational market and doing biographies and just introducing children to people that they may not know and parents as well, you know? That's right. That's right. And looking at the Leaders Like You series, there are the Henry Louis Gates titles, as you mentioned, but also Rebecca Lee Crumpler, Bayard Mm -hmm. Rustin, Major Taylor, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Shirley Chisholm, just to name a few. Mm -hmm. Um, In your writings, do you have a a favorite one that you've written about? Yeah, you know, this this is where I really feel like a mother of my books. <laughs> they always say, you're not supposed to pick a favorite <laughs> of your children. But I would have to say that my Georgia Gilmore title, and she was part of this last release at the beginning of January. So it was uh, Georgia Gilmore, Kathy Hughes, Frederick O'Neill, and O.W. Gurley uh, was in this release. But I love Georgia Gilmore. She was the woman in Montgomery, Alabama, that loved to cook. Mm -hmm. And so when the Montgomery bus boycott kicked off and it went for so long, it went much longer than what they thought it was going to go. So really like a year uh, it went on. And we know that they started, the city started, you know, adding all these little things so that they could deter the people from boycotting. So they added insurance, you know, the cars had to have insurance if people were going to transport them around like taxis and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So Georgia Gilmore used her gift of cooking and she cooked meals and baked cakes and pies and she sold them throughout the community. And that money, every Tuesday when they had a meeting, the SCLA, she would go to the church and she would donate this money. And so that was one way that the bus boycott, probably without her, maybe some of the others, but she, you know, Mm -hmm. she's the one that I wrote about. If 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 it wasn't for them, the, the bus boycott wouldn't have gone as long as it did. And then we wouldn't have been able to make that move in terms of integrating transportation. But I like her because she just took something simple. She didn't, you know, she didn't have a college degree. She didn't. They, they said she was kind of gruff in her speaking, you know, uh, playfully. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, she she was just an ordinary person, is basically right. what I'm trying to say. Right. And so right. that. I feel like is a great message to children is that if you look within, you do have something that you can contribute to make your community, 
your church, your family, you know, a better place. And she was just simply Georgia Gilmore. In fact, mm-hmm. they called her Tiny. She wasn't Tiny, but they called her Tiny. <laughs> that was her nickname. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a powerful message because we're all given our God-given gifts, diverse as they might be, because the world needs them. And so if we can, yes, as you mentioned, help children identify those gifts and nurture and grow those gifts. That's how each person can be a world changer. As we talk about here, each child Mm -hmm. can change the world. Each family can be a part of changing and creating that, that better world. And that Mm -hmm. you're, you also bring up a good point in that, you know, behind every, every leader or name that we know about was a family. It was a a neighborhood there behind them was a, a community, a church, Right. The, uh, behind them was, yeah, neighbors mm-hmm. who were supporting and lifting them up. There were leagues and boards and committees. And so it wasn't, you know, just one person often right. who accomplished everything. But as you mentioned, it was the, everybody banding together, mm-hmm. bringing their strengths and, and their gifts to push the movement forward. And right. That's a really... That goes right back around to your, your proverb. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. And I, I love that your stories highlight that. And speaking of kind of everyday things, you know, you tell a story about dolls and how dolls impacted kind of the progress. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's actually in the, uh, the Black Stories Matter series, the science title. And it is the story of doctors Kenneth and Mamie Clark. They were a couple psychologists. They met at Howard University, got married, and they the, the doll test was actually a part of Dr. Mamie Clark's dissertation. And so what she did was this was, you know, during segregation, they had these dolls and they put them before African American children that were like kindergarten, first grade age. They had one black one and one white one that was identical. And so they would ask them questions like, which doll is the pretty doll? And which doll is the, you know, the mean doll? And what they found was that over the course of that whole test and with all the majority of the children, that the black doll was the doll that was identified in the negative things, such as, you know, this is the, the black doll was the ugly doll. They would point to which which doll which was a smart doll, they would point to the white doll. And so they actually was able to use the doll test, the the findings from the doll test during uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. And it was a big factor in getting that whole case won and what changed the the country into being integrated. So the doll test with Dr. Uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark was was instrumental in uh, integration of schools in America. Yeah. yeah, I think the first time I heard about that, I it was really hard for me to believe um, that children. You know, I was younger when I you know first heard this, but that children already at young ages mm-hmm. internalize some of these messages, and right. you know we've you know we've come to see that children, you know, infants, toddlers, preschoolers, they are they're each in their formation of their cultural identity and of uh, understanding where they fit in the, in the puzzle Absolutely. of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And things is, um, and kind of what we're exposed to media dolls, right. uh, day-to-day, you know, interactions all kind of shape and form those things. And so mm-hmm. representation, as you've mentioned, so seeing ourselves represented in, in all around us, right. In the media Absolutely. And the books mm-hmm. um, also is hugely you know, important out of that. 
Exactly. Yes. So then with all that is going on in the world right now, you know, how do you use your books and your ministry to talk to children and families about race and empathy? Uh, I think that the main thing is just, again, showing them these people because, you know, not too long ago, it was a, a make, make America Great Again campaign. Won't call any names, but right, uh, right. <laughs> there was a Make America Great campaign. And it's like, you know, uh, America is already great. And we, you know, we are a part of that greatness. And just by showing these leaders uh, and stories that I've written about, people that I've written about, it just gives a more sense of pride and knowledge in knowing because, you know, the worst thing that was done was that this information was covered and we, we never knew about it. So we may not have had that high esteem in, in realizing how much we've contributed, you know, to our race, to the, to the nation and to the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that sense of identity and that self-esteem and that, you know, that, that process is huge, right. is mm-hmm. huge. So yes, thank you so much. I know for even personally, I have grown in the more that I know of the history, the, it has challenged me to reconsider, you know, kind of the, the way that I identify and the way that I see the, the collective story. And right. I think growing up, I think it was easy for me to, in some ways, distance myself as an African who came from Ghana at a young age. And I've shared this in, in some of the in, interviews I've done in C, at the end of season one with my cousin, Awokwe Sinsaki. If you haven't gone you know, back and listened to that, uh, listeners, please make sure to do so. Episode 16 or 17. And I share and we share a lot about our family story. And you know, the, some of the highlights of that was that you know, Ghana in the, yeah, in the 50s and 60s was going through letting go of colonialism and becoming, uh, forming their own country. And being one of the first in Africa to be able to, to kind of nationalize and be able to, to go through that process of forming. And so the experience of our family was interesting in that way, in that we had family members who are part of some of the leadership of that. And so it was a really kind of exciting time for what was happening in Africa and in Ghana in particular. And that was what, how my parents kind of grew up, was being a part of that, that kind of creation of a, and formation of a nation. Mm-hmm. And so they had their own kind of perspectives of America and what it meant to be, you know, um, African and African-American in America, which was different than someone who was born and, you know, raised here and had, you know, the, those set of experiences. And so I found, you know, that oftentimes I, there was a disconnect right, that I didn't understand when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, but as I grew and as I learned and as I saw between myself as, a, as an African you know, national to uh, being a part of the African-American story and experience mm-hmm. as, a, as I've grown up here. And so that, that journey is a unique one for everybody and is an important one, you know, as you mentioned, that it, it evolves. Mm-hmm. It evolves. I had, I had the opportunity I had the opportunity um, maybe three years. It was pre-COVID 
I went to Kenya with the Lot Carry Baptist Missionary and Women's, um, I can't remember the name of the group, but it was with their Women's Missionary Group. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting, you know, when we went over, everyone greeted us and they were like, Karabu, and everyone was so nice. Yeah. And this was my first trip to Africa. And I, you know, I just wanted to set my feet on African on the soil. soil. Yes. Exactly. And it is totally, I, if it, I would recommend anyone, if you can, absolutely uh, that opportunity to go back. And absolutely. the thing that they said to us is that they are very curious and they think about and pray about the Africans in America, the African-Americans all the time in, in yeah. other areas as well. And so yeah. they said, you know, they did, they never knew where the ships were going when they went yeah. out. And so anybody that stepped foot back on soil, um, they called us sisters. They called us brothers because, Mm. you know, they said, you are our sisters and brothers. We just Mm. never knew which direction that you you went went. in it. And just as much as we are trying to find our roots back in Africa, Mm -hmm. they are trying to find their connection and family members you know, in America, but again, they, they, because they didn't know which way the ships were going, they don't, you know, they, they have no idea where to even start. And so that, that touched me, that moved me. Yes. Yes. There is a really a collective healing, you know, that Mm -hmm. you're speaking to Mm -hmm. that takes place as Mm -hmm. you grow and hear the stories and make the connections. And now with DNA testing, People right. can, you know, trace those, that lineage, right? Trace those right. steps back. And it, it's a very powerful experience to be able to connect the dots for yourself right. and your family. Yes. Yeah. Great. Great. You know, I see you as an author and a speaker using your voice as a leader. Can you give us, you know, two or three tips perhaps for a listener who maybe wants to do the same? I, I say for anyone that is interested, particularly in writing. Mm-hmm. First thing to do is just embrace it. And mm-hmm. uh, even if you only have 15, 20 minutes a day to write something down or type something up, then do that. Now, if you're at a different level and you're more serious and have the time to get into it, I would recommend definitely taking classes, whether it's online classes or majoring in journalism of things of that nature. Because one thing I say, <laughs> If people really knew how much it took to write a good book, you know, whatever that good story is that you're reading right now that you have on your nightstand, if you really knew what that author went through to write that book, you'd be like, wow, you know, (laughs) but that's what it takes to write a good book. So you definitely have to study and learn the craft. And then the other thing I would say is to get in critique groups. There are a lot of critique groups online. You can find them from mystery writers, children's book writers, romance writers, whatever it is that your interest is in. Find a critique group. And if there are any professional organizations, join those like the Authors Guild. And I think the Authors Guild is maybe like $99 for authors that haven't been published. And they have a lot of training. They talk about legal stuff, things of that nature that you can sit in on those webinars. And then like myself, I'm a member of Authors Guild, and I'm also a member of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And so we call it SCBWI, but you definitely have to get connected again Mm -hmm. to a community Mm -hmm. and uh, sit with like-minded people. Because if you're going in one direction and you don't have like-minded people in your group, then it's not necessarily going to help you in moving forward and what you would like to do. 
That's great. That's great. We, again, we need each other and we need that feedback, right? It's a, it's a dynamic, you know, process and we can't kind of like write in a, a bubble, right. Or do our, our work in a bubble. That feedback right. is, is yes. huge. Yes. And um, my mom is an author, a children's story author as well. Oh, and okay. wrote about, yeah. Wrote about the, you know, growing up with her sister in Ghana and so uh, I interview her as my first guest on the podcast. Oh, so, you awesome. know, if you haven't gone back, yes, I encourage people to, to listen back. And then we've also featured uh, Janae Brownwood, who is a children's book author, also really highlighting representation in children's mm-hmm. you know, literature. So check out her, those episodes. And then my father actually in our family just recently published also in Ghana where he put together, speaking of collective stories, he put together the stories of some of the people from our hometown in Winneba, Ghana, oh, okay. and where they've gone and what they've done. And mm-hmm. just in 2022, that's uh, been published in Ghana. So right, there's writers all around. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yes, that I encourage you to you know, look into and to research. And um, yeah, it's just really, really excited that we can now, I, with my children, I can pick, pick up so many books. I can find so oh, yeah. much literature. I can expose mm-hmm. them and our house is filled with books of all you know, different kinds. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've even started an African-American book club with some of my children's friends. And so, oh, awesome. yes, we're gathering together once a quarter or so to highlight and spotlight a, a different books. So now we have some of your books that we can Included okay. in that list awesome. as well. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So as we wind down, what's next in children's literature for you? Well, like I said earlier, the majority of my work has been uh, educational work. It's been work, what we call work for hire. So the educational market, someone will contact me and ask me if I'm interested in doing a particular story and I'll do it. And it's one, you know, one set fee and, you know, I get no royalties from it or what have you. So this year, around the end of 2021, I I got my agent. I have a literary agent now. And so uh, we just finished all the revisions on uh, one of my stories that I'm going to publish traditionally. And so I'm excited about that. I can't wait to for that story to hit. I think that a lot of people are going to be surprised and they're going to enjoy this history. It's actually an event that occurred oh. um, in, in the United States that I, I, I won't go into too many details, right, but right. Uh, stay tuned. Yep, stay tuned. <laughs> At least the, I hope the announcement will be able to, I'll be able to make the announcement once a publisher finalizes does. everything. Yes. Finalizes everything. Yeah. I love that. Oh, so that's that's so what's exciting. next. Oh, that's so exciting. Cannot (laughs) wait. Yes, definitely keep us posted on that. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, the the year, the word of the year is overflow and abundance for the podcast. I'm really curious. Yeah. What does this word mean for you? And, you know, now that we're in this year. Oh, well, overflow and abundance for me, especially from a spiritual standpoint, I just feel like that uh, this is the year, uh, the type, the type of writing that I do, um, I can see that uh, it's, it's exactly what editors and publishers are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I feel like that we will see an abundance of uh, stories with Black characters, mm-hmm. uh, Black settings, or Uh, settings with uh, from African um, 
not diaspora is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I think that we, I think you're going to see uh, an abundance of that. And, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's unfortunate that it, it took something as traumatic. I think that, um, that we saw this shift after um, the George Floyd murder. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate that it took something that tragic to open people's eyes to see, because it's not like it's, it's nothing that we've been saying. Um, you know, we've been saying right. this for All the long. longest, uh, you know, we need to be represented. We need inclusion. We are more than athletes, you know. And so um, I think that you're going to see an abundance of of things across the board, um, economics, finances, all of that, um, African-Americans and people of the world of African diaspora is going to see a huge change. Yeah, that's really powerful. Yes. And, you know, I think also, you know, I don't know if you have any tips for those who yeah, maybe find that their children are struggling with some of this identity question, especially when, when we see in the news, right, situations that come up and, and still in, in the communities all around us that just shouldn't be happening, right, in 20, you know, 2022. Mm-hmm. Do you have some advice for, you know, how to support children in their identity, especially as things kind of continue to happen, right? In my mind, for a long time, civil rights was history. We already overcame Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And where we arrived. And yet, uh, you know, as we know, it's an it's an ongoing journey. And so do you have any words on that? You know, I just especially being faith based, I just think that we just need to uh, remain prayerful and um, and we do the right thing uh, within ourselves, you know, in spite of how much wrong we see out there. Uh, right. we, we do the right things. And right. I think that if leading by example, if your children see that you're doing the right thing and that you're doing things to contribute to the community, you're volunteering, you're, uh, you know, helping other families that may not be able to help, uh, you know, have uh, the, the help that they need at that time. I think that those are the main things that children need to see and just, you know, help lift them up you know, uh, instead of tearing them down, you know, so if they have a behavior that you don't like, let them know that it's the behavior, not you, you know, not the child. Exactly. And uh, so many organizations, you know, there's, there's uh, a boys and girls club, there's, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there's so many organizations, boy scouts and things of that nature that help build character and, and help them to understand and maneuver around in the world. And, just having a strong family unit, uh, you know, oh, not letting someone else raise your child right. <laughs> or the television right. in particular. Don't let right. the television or YouTube. <laughs> we have so many more things now. You know, oh. I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't have social media. You know, <laughs> my, my God grands now, you know, we we sit down to talk, uh, sit down to dinner and they have the little stands for, you know, for their their iPad and all this. And it's like, no, 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 not here. Right, <laughs> you know? right, not in this house. <laughs> right, yeah. So, uh, so, so much of that social media is uh, is is really uh, what you really probably need to keep keep them away from as well. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. It's a whole. Uh, that's a whole other topic for a whole other. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yes, you you do bring up and remind us. You know that prayer is at the heart of so much of the change we want to, to see and that mm-hmm. be living by example, right. Is that mm-hmm. the change of, you know, at the heart of the change we want to be. So I thank you so much for sharing 
and being a part of this conversation. Uh, so rich and so many resources. Cannot wait to explore more of your books with my children. And how can we and the audience, you know, stay in touch with you and, uh, you know, access some of the resources? Sure. Yeah, you can go to my website. It is www.authorjpmiller2020.com. And from there, if you want to send me a note, you're, you're able to contact me from my website and it comes to me and I'll answer everyone. So uh, yeah, That's I would love right. to hear from you. If you were interested in having me at a for a virtual school visit or in-person school visit, that you can also contact me there as well and we'll work something out. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Moms Changing the World with host Akua Walker. The information shared on this show is meant for educational purposes only and not intended as a substitute for medical intervention or professional therapy. All views shared on the show are that of the speakers only and do not represent any institution. To be a part of the community, visit www.momschangingtheworld.org. There you'll find ways to connect with and support the moms we interview and find out how to work with Akua as a parenting coach. Join us next time for more encouragement and support to be a mom changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.